Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim, that is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children into the third, or of the third generation. The children also of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, it's been about a month uh, since school has finished, and my children have been home out of classes for the summer. And as with most children, the beginning of summer is a really exciting time. Uh, they have so much time on their hands to do everything they could possibly want into their heart's content. And so there's been a lot of fun, a lot of joy at our house as my children have done exactly that. But as the days and weeks and now about a month out of school has passed by, my children are beginning to realize that 
there's an awful lot of time on their hands and they don't always know what to do with it. And so some days when they run out of their bucket list for the summer or for the week or for the day, they can come to mom and dad and ask the question, well, what do we do now? Or what comes next out of their deep boredom in the middle of a summer? Well, this week or this month has been a very busy time for my wife and me, and so it's hard to garner too much sympathy for bored children who can't find enough to do. But sometimes those questions, what do we do now, what comes next, are not asked from a place of boredom, are not asked by bored children. Rather, they are instead questions that sometimes arise by people, and sometimes from you and me, when we are in the midst of deep trials, deep difficulties, deep sufferings in life. It's not from boredom, it's from a place of desperation, of a place of trying to get our heads around what direction is up when our lives are dealing with all that we are dealing with. What do we do now? What comes next? And those questions asked from that place in life do garner quite a bit more sympathy. You see, we ask these questions from time to time. How can we move forward? How can I move forward when my life is filled with so much suffering, when I am surrounded by so much evil in this world? Well, this passage in Genesis chapter 50 is taking up that very question. Now, to be clear, by the time we get to the end of Genesis 50, we will not have solved all of the questions of evil in this world. We will not have resolved all of the suffering in this life. But that's not what this chapter is trying to do when it takes up this question of how do we move forward in the midst of suffering. This chapter is trying to help us to get our minds around how to deal with all of the suffering and the evil around us as we move forward by reminding us that in the midst of everything that happens, God is working all things together for our good. That's our big idea this morning, that God is working all things together for our good. Now, we'll see uh, this passage in three parts. There are kind of three sections to this passage. Number one, walking in our grief. Walking in our grief. Number two, working out our good. Working out our good. And then number three, waiting for our God waiting for our God. So the first section deals with walking in our grief, and it's uh, verses 1 through 14. And in this whole section, there's a great emphasis put on the mourning and the lamentation and the grieving, the disaster that has fallen on the household of Jacob, the, the head of the nation of Israel, whose own name was changed to Israel. He has died, and now there is an extensive period of grief and mourning. And this grief and mourning period is all the more pronounced when we compare what happens here in Genesis 50 for Jacob's death to what happened for Jacob's father, Isaac, or what happened to Jacob's father's or grandfather, Abraham. When they died, the grieving and the lamentation that's described there is much more minimal compared to what, here, what we see here. Uh, the author is going out of his way to show us that the, the Egyptians and Joseph um, and his family had a tremendous amount of grieving and mourning for the death of Jacob. We see in verse 1 that Joseph wept over his father. Well, that makes sense. This is his dad. But in verse 3, we see that even the Egyptians weep for him, and not just a little bit of weeping, they wept for him for 70 days. And then when Joseph organizes this caravan to go up from Egypt back to the land of Canaan, where he could bury his father in the cave where Jacob had asked his son to bury him, 
we read that when he goes there, another round of lamentation and grieving breaks out that is so grievous that the Canaanites, seeing this in the land, actually rename the place Abel Mitzrayim, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. The name of the place was to commemorate what a grievous set of lamentation that the Egyptians or the, uh, the Hebrews and the Egyptians were offering on behalf of Joseph. There's a tremendous amount of grieving here, especially as compared to the deaths of Abraham and Isaac, where the grieving was fairly minimal. Well, there's good reason for this. We're coming to the end of Genesis, but as we come to the end of Genesis, we're also coming to the end of, the er of an era. This is the end of the era of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three have lived, and all three have died. And the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob have not yet been fulfilled. In fact, it seems very distant that it would be from seeing those promises fulfilled. Because the people of God, the Israelites, all those descended from Israel, are not even in the land of Canaan, which God promised to give them. They are in exile in Egypt. And so in the midst of this mourning and grieving and lamentation, the question that this is implying is, what do we do now? What comes next? Well, part of the answer that we get here is, is in the way this story tells of how Joseph and this huge caravan leaves Egypt to go back to the land of Canaan. The language that we are told here in this whole story is foreshadowing what will happen in the next book of the Bible. It's foreshadowing the exodus of Israel out of the land of Egypt to go back to the land that God had promised to give to the Israelites. We see this foreshadowing in a few ways. The first way we see this foreshadowing of the exodus is in the apparent change in Joseph's status in the household of Pharaoh. Now remember, when, when Pharaoh promoted Joseph to be second in command over all Egypt, he said, you will be equal with me except for the throne. Only as regards the throne over Egypt will I remain greater than you. Joseph had that high place of standing, but when it comes to asking for a little time off to go to bury his father, bereavement time off, he's not even able to approach Pharaoh directly anymore. For some reason, he has to go through the household of Pharaoh and ask the household of Pharaoh to put in a good word with Pharaoh. Now, this is confusing as to why this is, but it certainly foreshadows the growing gap that Israel will face between the favor that they enjoyed earlier in this part of Genesis to the lack of favor that they will have in the next book of Exodus. And indeed, Moses goes through the same kind of, of fall from favor. Remember that he, Moses was adopted by one of the princesses of Egypt, one of the daughters of Pharaoh. He was raised as a prince in the court of Egypt, but then God called him to be the prophet, to declare, let my people go to Pharaoh. And when that happened, Moses was no longer the favored prince. He was the out-of-favor prophet. We see something of that foreshadowed in Joseph's fall from grace here. But we also see that when Joseph asks to go to Canaan, he promises to return. And in fact, he leaves children behind. You may remember this was a part of what Moses originally asked Pharaoh. He said, we're just going to go out into the distance a little way, and we're going to offer our sacrifices, and then we will return. That was the original request and even that Pharaoh rejected in the book of Exodus. And so what we are seeing here is a preview of Moses' initial request. But then in verses 9 through 11, all of the language that describes the great company and the mixed multitude of people, the household and the brothers and the father's household and the flocks and the herds and the chariots and the horsemen and the great company of people, 
who go up from Egypt to Canaan. All of those words are going to be reused in Exodus 10 through 14 to narrate everything that happens in the great drama surrounding the exodus of Israel out of Egypt and the pursuits of the Egyptians in their chariots after them. What's happening here is we are getting part of the answer. What comes next? What do we do now? Well, part of the answer is that God will one day provide for his people. God will one day bring his people up out of this land. God will provide for their needs and God will take them out of exile and give to them all that he has promised to them. One day, someday. But right now, God is simply foreshadowing, showing in advance what their future will be. Now, this is important as Christians. It's as important as Christians that we know that one day, someday, Christ will return and he will set absolutely all things right. One day, someday, Christ will return to lead us out of this world into a great exodus, into our eternal promised land with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But as important as it is for us to understand that one day, someday, Christ will return, on its own, that isn't all that God promises us. He does promise us that Christ will return one day to set all things right, but he also promises that in the meantime, the path that God has appointed for us is also very important. If we don't have the promise for what God will do at the end, that's terrible because that, will, that means that there would be no ultimate justice, that evil would be allowed to remain unchecked forever. There must be that finality. But God also insists throughout the scriptures that the way God has appointed for us is also an important part. We are not killing time in this life until the next what God has for us now is important. Um, I've told this story before, I think, but in high school I had an opportunity to go to a jazz band camp for a week in the middle of the summer. And I really liked jazz band at the time, so I was excited to go to this camp. Um, but the first day I was there for a variety of reasons, I really hated it and wanted to leave immediately. And so I called my parents and begged them to come pick me up and take me home. But very wisely, they said, no, they said, you've made a commitment. You need to follow through with it. And so I was stuck there that week. Now, I'd like to say that I took it in stride and I realized, well, hey, I'm going to make the best of it and we're going to do the best we can this week and have a good time there. But that wasn't at all my attitude. I was very bitter, I was upset that my parents made me stay there, and the whole week I just pouted and had a terrible time during that week. All I could think about was that I was just killing time until my parents would come to get me out of that place to take me home. Now as I look back on that event, I'm really ashamed because, again, I liked jazz. I really would have enjoyed that week if I had had a good attitude about it, but I wasted the path as I was waiting for the end of that path to come. Now, sometimes when we are walking through seasons of deep grief, not the boredom of children, not the angst of a teenager at jazz band camp, but when we are dealing with deep grief, sometimes all we can hold on to is that one day, someday, Christ is returning to make all things new. And that's a critical part of our hope. But the scriptures everywhere tell us God is not finished with your life until all things are brought to an end. God has a purpose for what you are going through now, and what is happening in the future does not negate the importance of what God is doing now. And so you might ask, well, what comes next? What do I do now? How do I make it through this suffering that I am dealing with? And that's where Genesis gives us this second section, verses 15 through 21 
to remind us that God is working all things together for our good. The second section where we see how God is working out our good says uh, that, that God is in, reminds us of this great truth. So let's look at what happens here in verses 15 through 17. Joseph's brothers realize that after the death of their father, Jacob, they may have some problems with Joseph. Remember, they had sold Joseph into slavery, first attempted to kill him, and they're worried that Joseph is going to pay them back for their cruelty to him. And so they tell a story about the deathbed of their father, that, that right when their father Jacob was about to die, he said, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And so the brothers deliver this message to Joseph. Now, we don't know whether this story is made up, but it certainly sounds made up. Most commentators think that the brothers of Joseph are making this story up as some kind of a, a attempt to pull up the heartstrings of Joseph to try to make sure that based on the dying memory of their father, uh, they will be able to be forgiven in the eyes of Joseph. Joseph, when he hears this, weeps. We're not sure if he's weeping for his father or weeping that his brothers would have to tell him this story in order to secure his forgiveness in their eyes because Joseph has already forgiven them. And so when Joseph responds in verses 19 through 21, at the very beginning of his speech and at the end of his speech, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. At the beginning and the end, because they have nothing to fear from him, he has forgiven them. But Joseph, in the midst of this speech, gives us two critical statements that inform not only how we understand Joseph's relationship with his brothers, not only how we understand Joseph's personal theology of how to get through life in the midst of being surrounded by great evil and suffering, but really these two critical statements help us to make sense of Genesis as a whole, the whole book of Genesis. The first critical statement in verse 19, after Joseph for the first time says, do not fear, he says, do not fear for am I in the, pl in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Now, what Joseph is doing here is, is a very direct rejection of something that we heard at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. The serpent, when the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to tempt them to sin, he promised them in Genesis 3, verse 5, you will be like God. If you eat this forbidden fruit, you will be like God. You will be in the place of God, knowing good from evil on your own, apart from God apart from any dependence upon God. And so Adam and Eve pursued wisdom, trying to be like God at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And because of that, all sin and evil broke out into the world because they listened to the serpent and they tried to be like God. Whereas here at the very end of Genesis, that's the one thing that Joseph rejects. I am not in the place of God is what he's saying. Joseph is wise because he understands that he is not in the place of God. He knows his place, and it's not as one who stands in the place of God to judge his brothers and to judge between good and evil. But this leads us to the second critical statement that Joseph gives. He gives it in verse 20. I want to read the whole thing for you. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, Joseph is differentiating between the motivations between his brothers and God. He's saying, everything that has happened for me, you did it because you meant it for evil against me. Your heart was filled with evil against me. 
But everything that happened was not outside the control of God. God was sovereign over all of it. Evil does not come from God, but God works through evil. God channels evil. God guides evil. God sets boundaries to evil. And everything that happened, God was sovereign over, and God guided all of that evil because he meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What's the good here? Well, Joseph said to keep many people alive as they are today. Because of everything the brothers did, Joseph ended up in Egypt, and Joseph was able to lead the management through the seven years of famine so that people did not starve during that time. Now, what Joseph is pointing to is this issue of life and death. God did this in order to preserve life and avoid death. Well, again, that was also the idea. That was also what was at stake at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And the serpent said, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, when Adam and Eve told him that they would die if they eat it, which God had told them, the serpent said, you will not surely die in Genesis 3 verse 4. Both God and the serpent promised life. And whereas Adam and Eve trusted the word of the serpent, in spite of the overwhelming goodness of God toward them in the garden, Joseph, at the very end of Genesis, has learned. And Joseph is now able to trust the word of God in spite of the overwhelming evil he faced during his lifetime. He discerned how God had worked good through evil. Now, this is an extremely important insight into how God brings good through evil. Joseph looks at his whole life and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, has such a wonderful line. He says, drawing from this statement, he says, whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his people. Whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his people, medicine to heal his people. What Satan means for evil, what Satan means for death, God turns that into medicine. God turns it into good and for life. Notice here, then, the very end of the book of Genesis is responding to what happened at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Joseph here is rejecting the lies that the serpent spoke to deceive Adam and Eve at the beginning of the book of Genesis. But it's important to understand the cat's already out of the bag. Sin has already entered the world, and Joseph, by this speech, is not able to right all of the wrongs that arose in the world from the original sin of Adam and Eve. But here at the end of Genesis, Joseph's words form a fitting conclusion for the book of Genesis. Because remember, the book of Genesis began on a note of goodness. In Genesis 1, seven times we read that everything that God created was not only good, it was very good. But then the big question was, and it's a question we still wrestle with today, how can we get that goodness back now that evil has entered the world through sin? What do we do now? What comes next now that evil is in the world? Can we ever get that goodness back? Now, it's going to take the other 65 books of the Bible to answer this question fully. But we're seeing here in Joseph's response to his brothers a foundational principle upon which the rest of the story of the Bible will depend. That what we intend for evil, God intends for good. And more than that, he will waste nothing of even the evil in this world as he is weaving everything together for the ultimate good of his people. Now, earlier, I mentioned that my children were out of school 
Um, one of the fun things that they did in school that I really enjoyed was when they wrote stories. When my children wrote stories and they'd have to bring it home in their Friday folders and I'd get to read their stories. It's so much fun reading the stories that children write, because they, especially because they remind me of the stories that I wrote at that age. When a child tells a story, it starts in a, in a pretty good place, someone who's pretty happy. And then something happens to make that person even happier. Good goes to better. And then more things happen. And then better things happen. It goes from good to better to best. And everything usually ends on a wonderful birthday party where everyone eats lots of ice cream. Now, those stories are wonderful because they're a projection of what we all want our lives to be. I want my life to go from good to better to best. And there's something refreshing about reading a child's story about that. But of course, most stories don't go this way. And the best stories, the ones that capture our imagination because they ring so true to the experiences that we all face, the best stories may start with someone in a relatively good situation, but almost immediately something happens to bring disaster and evil into that person's life. And the rest of the story is spent trying to resolve what happened at the very beginning. And of course, many things happen along the way where it's not just that one big problem, but a lot of problems appear at many different times. But if you read the very best stories, it's interesting that all of those problems that pop up along the way are never accidental. They are never purposeless. They are never just to make the person suffer a little bit more. All of those problems, if you read the very best stories, play an integral part in providing for the grand finale, the conclusion, the climax at the end of the story. Along the way, the problems bring about new friendships or new skills or new knowledge that by the end of the story is going to be essential for the conclusion of the great problem that began in the beginning. The best stories are like that. And certainly the Bible tells that kind of a story. That nothing that happens in this life is on accident. That whatever anyone means for evil, God is turning it all to good. That whatever Satan brings into this world for poison, God is wasting nothing of it, but using it as the medicine by which he will heal his people forever. And God is doing all of this because he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Believing in God means more than simply believing that he exists, although that's true. It means more than believing that he created the world and everything in it, although that is also true. Believing in God means more even than believing that he will save us someday, although that also, praise be to God, is true. Believing in God, faith in God, means believing that in spite of all outward appearances, that this world contains great evil and that it is governed by evil because that's what the world looks like when we evaluate it. It looks like it is run by madness and chaos and evil. Believing in God means that in spite of all outward appearances, we recognize that God is weaving all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so we come then to the final words of Genesis which capture this tension, the tension of how we should live our lives between the already and the not yet. The already where we know that God is working good through evil, even though we can't see how, and the not yet where we know that God will ultimately set all things right in the final exodus when Christ returns to take his people into their everlasting inheritance. This final section 
in verses 22 through 26 shows us how we live today as we await the not yet. What do we do now? What comes next? Well, in this final section, we have seen walking in our grief, working out our good, and now we see waiting, waiting for our God in verses 22 through 26. Verses 22 to 23 tell us about the final days of Joseph, how he lives a long life to 110 years, how he sees his children's children, Ephraim's children to the third generation, and also the children of Mehir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. He lives a full life filled with children and grandchildren. But then in verse 24 through 26, when Joseph is about to die, he summons his brothers and says, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you. Visiting you, he will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you, will, you should carry up my bones from here. The emphasis is on the certainty that God will visit his people. Well, what does this word visit mean? If I told you that I was going to come by for a visit, you probably wouldn't think much. Maybe you would set out some tea or something like that for a visit. Well, understand that when God comes to visit, it's not a pleasant social call where we set out tea. When God comes to visit, it means that God comes so that destinies will be changed as God brings blessings for his people and curses for those who have opposed him. And that's exactly what's going to happen. God will visit his people to bless them by bringing them out of Egypt and by cursing the Egyptians for opposing him and for causing his people to suffer. Joseph's parting words then are looking forward to this, looking forward to what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. Joseph's parting urge, words urge his brothers and their children after them to live their lives in faith-driven expectation of the Lord's coming deliverance for his people. Now see, Joseph had lived his whole life this way. He had lived his whole life in faith-driven expectation that God would set all things right. And he calls his brothers to follow in those footsteps, as well as for us to do the same. And so in these final words in Genesis, as Genesis ends, we have God's people in exile, in Egypt, as they await the deliverance from the day of the Lord's visitation. And understand, we are in exactly the same position, not in Egypt, but we are waiting as exiles and sojourners in this world with the same kind of exhortation. An exhortation not from Joseph, but from Jesus. The closing words of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. God will surely visit you. Like the Israelites at the close of Genesis for us to live and to believe in God, that means living with confident expectation for the day of the visitation of the Lord, when Christ will return bodily from heaven to judge the living and the dead. So what do we do now? What comes next? Well, remember, our big idea is that God is working all things together for good. So our overarching application today is trust the Lord to bring good out of evil. Trust the Lord to bring good out of evil. Remember the looming question over all of Genesis from the very beginning when God's good creation was marred by the sin of Adam and Eve, the looming question for the whole book of Genesis is now that we have lost that original goodness, how could we ever regain it? And the answer is we can't, not on our own. But God is promising that he will visit us in order to restore the goodness that we lost through our sin. 
And Genesis 50 is giving us an initial answer of how that's going to come about in Joseph's response. Joseph possesses true knowledge of good and evil, not that he sought to gain in order to be in the place of God, but where he recognizes that he's not in the place of God, and so he is trusting in the Lord to bring good even out of evil. And so while Genesis is a fitting conclusion for, or Genesis 50 is a fitting conclusion for the book of Genesis, again, there's much more of the story to be told, and that's what we'll briefly try to consider now. The first thing that we must consider, the first thing that we must do, is that we must believe that God has brought good out of the evil of Christ's crucifixion. God brings good out of evil, and he has brought good out of evil through Christ's crucifixion. When lawless men, when unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews, and when cruel, oppressive Romans nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, they were committing the most heinous crime in all of human history. No one has been innocent except for that man, Jesus Christ. He was completely innocent of all that he was accused of, and they crucified him. But he wasn't just a man. They were crucifying the one who was the Lord of glory. Nothing more heinous has ever been done in the history of human evil. And yet the Bible declares that Christ's crucifixion was the power of God unto salvation. Christ's crucifixion was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, offering Jesus Christ as a substitute atoning sacrifice for our sins. Have you then confessed your sins to the Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you put your evil on Christ through confession and repentance of sin and trusted that he will be your righteousness so that you can stand without fault and blameless before the throne of God through Christ alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The second application then is to believe that God is bringing good out of the evil in your life. God is bringing good out of the evil that you are experiencing right now in your life. I know that some of you are going through exceedingly difficult times. I know that some of you are facing the evil of a broken, cursed creation or you are facing the evil of fallen, sinful human beings, and even perhaps the consequences for your own fallenness and sinfulness and your own sin. But if anyone knew sorrow, if anyone knew the experience of evil, it was Joseph. Not because of what he did, but because of what was perpetrated against him. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of attempted rape. He was abandoned in prison by a man whom he helped and served. He was estranged from his beloved father for over 20 years. And yet in spite of all of that great evil, he expresses this confidence that what everyone else meant for evil, God meant for good. Whatever was brought as a a poison to take his life, God turned it to medicine. God was working good out of that evil. So brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another. There are difficult times where sometimes we can not see this very clearly and we need others to come into our lives to remind us of this truth or vice versa. Maybe we can see that clearly today and we are needed by someone else to come alongside them and to encourage them. We need to learn together to gaze upon God's invisible hand by faith as he sets boundaries to evil to channel it toward the good that he is appointing for it. If you had absolute confidence that God was working what is in your life right now toward good, how would you respond? 
There was a time in college where I remember I was absolutely crushed. I was brokenhearted. I was so sorrowful for the things that were going on in my life. And I remember the one insight that got me through it was to think that if I truly knew what God was doing, if I could see not only the beginning, but if I could see all the way to the end, that if I could see all of that, I would not be upset about this as much as it would be painful and I would mourn it. Rather, I would be cheering God on for the good that he was working out in my life. How would you respond if you could see the goodness that God is working out through the suffering you are facing today? The third thing is to believe that God not only has brought good through the evil of Christ's crucifixion, not only that he is bringing good to the evil in your life right now, but third thing is that we must believe that God will bring good out of evil at Christ's return. Beloved, we are sojourners and exiles in this world as we await the day of Christ's visitation. On that day, the scriptures tell us that at the blast of a trumpet of an angel in heaven, Christ will return. Christ will descend to bring his people home. And he will be accompanied by those who have died in the faith. And he will be accompanied by legions of warrior angels at his side. And on that day, Christ will raise the dead. He will summon both the dead and the living before his righteous throne where he will administer true, eternal, final justice. And to those who have rejected his reign, the warning of the scriptures is that Christ will cast them off into the fiery torment of hell for all eternity. Understand, if you don't know Jesus, that's the fate that awaits you, to be cast off into hell for all of eternity. So the scriptures plead us to make sense of this, to turn to King Jesus before he comes in judgment. Now is the time to seek the pardon that he offers because the Son of God is surely coming to visit you. If you're looking to him in faith, it'll be for blessing. But if you are rejecting Christ, it will be for curse. And so the promise is that for all those who have looked to Jesus and you can trust in him today, if you've trusted in Christ at any point in your life, Christ will point to his completed and fulfilled judgment at the cross so that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friends, this final day is coming when Jesus will right all the wrongs that have been done in the world. And Jesus tells us that he is coming soon. And so the question we all have to ask is, are you ready for his coming? Are you looking at your life with expectation that God is working even the evil in your life toward ultimate good? Have you trusted in him, in, in him for salvation and are you living every day with the expectation of his visitation. What do we do now? What comes next, brothers and sisters? Let us live by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we go through our darkest hours and as we face evil and suffering and grief all around us, we pray that you would build us up in Christ to trust him in the good that he is bringing even out of the evil that we face. We, we confess that you are not the author of evil. We know that you are not the source of evil, and yet we confess, Father, also that you are sovereign over every bit of it so that nothing escapes your control and that whatever Satan means for evil, you bring toward good. We pray that for our lives and for the lives of those who are suffering this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.